Now, in this series, we've applied complexity science to a whole range of systems. And most of those systems are obvious complex systems like the economy or cities. Now, in this episode, it's a little bit different. We're going to apply complexity science to something that may not seem that obvious, and that is creativity. And to help us do this, we're joined again by Tyler Margettis, Assistant Professor of Cognitive and Information Sciences at the University of California, Merced. Now, Tyler's been a guest on the show a couple of times. He's looked at tipping points and he's looked at tipping points in jazz music. And he even managed to weave in the role of ecology or relationships between ecology and jazz into those episodes. And you're going to see he's going to bring ecology into this episode as well on creativity. And what Tyler wants us to do is he wants us to take our traditional view of what makes someone creative, what's happening inside their brain, in other words, and we want to pull the camera back. And instead of just looking at creativity inside that person's brain, we want to look at creativity not only in the person's brain, but in the wider society. In other words, he wants to examine the idea of society as a complex cognitive system. So leave your preconceptions about creativity at the door and go on a journey with Tyler to take a complex systems view of human creativity. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Hello, Tyler. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to talk about something completely different to what we talked about before, at least on the surface, something that looks completely different. We've talked about tipping points before and state changes, and we've talked about jazz music and complexity. But today, we're going to talk about creativity. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. So what are we talking about when we talk about creativity? We all have experiences of feeling creative. You know, we're working on our Wordle puzzles in the morning or, you know, solving a crossword puzzle and we, we, we solve the answer and that is a little flash of creativity. But of course, there are these historical examples of world transforming innovations, radical new creations, the invention of the internet, the invention of the steam engine. And that's the level of creativity that I want to talk about today and that I think is really demystified when we adopt a complex systems perspective. It goes from seeming like magic to just being a natural consequence of certain kinds of distributed cognitive complex systems. And what you're talking about there, isn't it, is that it's like we have this romanticized view, don't we, that you have these really, really clever people who have these eureka moments where they go from knowing absolutely nothing about the answer to knowing the answer and it's obvious and world-changing all in, all in one go. And you're saying that when you actually look into it, it's not quite like that and there's a whole lot more going on. I love those romantic myths. I grew up reading a lot of biographies of scientists and they're often written in this way where it seems like they're the only person who existed at that time it was just them cogitating, sweating, steam coming out of their ears, and then suddenly they have this eureka insight, as you put it. That vision makes it difficult to understand the actual history of science. And I think there's one real puzzle that I think is just unresolvable with that romantic notion of what creativity is, and it's the phenomenon of simultaneous invention. This refers to cases throughout history where 
two people, seemingly with very little influence on each other, arrive at similar, maybe even identical insights that are radical and transformative, like nothing that came before, and yet they're popping up at the exact same time in very different places. Now, for the historians who are listening, some of these cases have since been massaged where there's some evidence, maybe there's some contact, it wasn't the exact same time. But even with that caveat, these examples are pretty striking because sure, it wasn't the exact same moment, maybe they're differing by a few years, but you have two scientists working separately, arriving at really similar ideas after, you know, centuries of people not having those thoughts. So yeah, the classic example is Newton and Leibniz inventing the calculus. So calculus that we learn in high school, that wasn't around forever. It's a fairly recent innovation, a transformative innovation in mathematics. And if you go on Wikipedia, you could read about this ongoing debate about who got it first, Newton or Leibniz. You know, if you're asking me to put money on one of the horses, I think Newton probably got it first, but Leibniz probably got it better. Like the notation we use now is Leibniz's. But another example is the development of a theory of evolution by natural selection. So nowadays we associate that with Charles Darwin, and that's totally correct. But at around the same time, this other guy, Alfred Russell Wallace, came to a basically almost identical account of evolution by natural selection. He actually wrote a letter to Darwin being like, uh, hey, I've got this crazy idea. Like, any feedback? What do you think? And that galvanized Charles Darwin to finally get his treatment out. He's like, oh gosh, I've been sitting on this for too long. I know this is going to ruffle some feathers, but I don't want to be scooped, right? <laughs> you know, sort of the rancor of many religious folks who were resistant to a scientific account of evolution wasn't as scary as this Wallace character coming along and claiming that he had developed the theory first. And so there you have these two folks, you know, with minimal contact with each other, arriving at very, very similar ideas at the same time. If we're using this romantic vision of creativity as the spark of genius coming up through individual minds that are somehow touched by the divine, by some genetic possibility that just makes them different, then all of a sudden this becomes really mysterious. Why do you get these cases of really similar innovations happening at the same time in different places by different people if the engine of creativity is this solitary genius mind? It's sort of a mystery. And this is where complex systems thinking comes in, isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the second you're comfortable thinking in terms of systems, that gives you a flexibility to step back and ask, well, what is the right way to bound the system? A natural way to bound the system in thinking of creativity is at the skull. You think, okay, brains, that's involved in thinking. Maybe we just need to focus on what's happening inside an individual brain. So that's one decision about how to bound the system. And that's a standard way of drawing the boundaries of cognition. Is that the skull looking at individual brains? And that's sort of classic romantic notion of creativity is sort of looking at one individual brain. But once you're a card-carrying complex systems theorist, you're not tied to classic boundaries. You can step back and be like, well, what if I drew that boundary slightly differently? What if I included, I don't know, maybe the body or all the tools the person's using or even zooming out to look at an entire society as a complex cognitive system 
that makes certain kinds of ideas or discoveries or innovations more or less likely to be had by any of the individual people that make up that society. And once you start thinking about creativity as something that might emerge at the level of an entire society, then it becomes almost natural to expect that you would get these moments of simultaneous invention because the system is set up in just the right way that it's ready for that discovery. It's ready for that next step in understanding. Can we say it's ready to tip? Yeah. And so I love this language of tipping points or critical transitions. And that definitely seems to be what's happening in some of these cases where you have a really, really sticky way of thinking about the world, thinking about speciation and evolution in one particular way, sort of pre-Darwinian ways. And then this tip to this really kind of radical insight that maybe you can get evolution without any sort of directedness just by natural selection, right? So you have random variation and natural selection. Maybe that on its own is enough for evolution. That idea is really transformative. It really changes the way that you might think about all of biology. And Darwin and Wallace were both folks who did have that critical transition from more traditional ways of thinking to the way that we have of thinking about it today. So yeah, a critical transition or a tipping point way of thinking about it is a great way. Another nice metaphor from Inside Complex Systems is the idea of the adjacent possible. This is a cute little phrase from Stuart Kaufman, who's a biologist, but also one of the original complex systems theorists. And he was thinking about the evolution of organisms, of species. And the insight that he had was that you can't go from anywhere to anywhere. Things change incrementally. You can only take a step to that spot in the space of possible different bodies and brains if you can actually reach that spot from where you are right now. The metaphor underlying this is that you can think of a species as being a particular location in some set of valleys and hills and mountains, and you can't jump from one mountaintop to the next. All you can do is take one step, and that step might take you a little bit down or a little bit up. Similarly, when you're thinking about the kind of you know radical idea that was had by Darwin and Wallace, if you actually look at the ideas that are in circulation there, that insight that they had was to the adjacent possible. It was next to ideas that were in circulation. The pieces were there. They were just able to take the right step in the right direction and recognize that that new way of thinking about the world was actually really productive. And this concept, which I really struggle with, this concept of niches inside complex systems, and that's that you can evolve in the same way, even though the two things aren't talking to each other or near each other. Just go into that a little bit more, Tyler. I, I'm really interested in that. One cool thing about this conversation so far is it's illustrating how the same phenomenon can be viewed in different ways. And each of those perspectives sort of unveiled different details of the phenomenon. So you brought up critical transition. So I love this sort of tipping point, critical transitions perspective. From biology, you have this idea of the adjacent possible. And then you could also sort of think about these societies as ecosystems and say, okay, what does ecology have to say about why you might get simultaneous invention? And the classic complex systems theorist trick is to look at two systems that seem really, really different on the surface and notice similarities, right? Notice analogs across the system. So we have simultaneous invention in the case of thought 
innovation in society. And then in ecology, you have this fantastic and beautiful and inspiring phenomenon of convergent evolution, where you have completely unrelated species that have been separated by many, many thousands of years that end up looking the same in some way because they're trying to solve a similar problem. And so they end up at a similar solution. For me, the most striking example is uh, the Tasmanian tiger, now unfortunately extinct, sort of the thylacine and the red fox, sort of classic red fox that I'm familiar with from North America and Europe. If you shave these guys or if you discover their skeletons and sort of get off the hair, sort of like no cute little outfits, they're very difficult to tell apart. Like you need to be an expert to distinguish between a Tasmanian tiger skeleton and a red fox skeleton. They're not related. One's a marsupial, one's a placental mammal. That's how deep the evolutionary divergence between these species is. And yet they've arrived at really, really similar morphology really similar skeletal systems. Why? Well, because they're in similar niches. So what, yeah, what do we mean by a niche? If you look at an ecosystem, which is a bunch of animals, an environment relating between them, and a possible slot to fit in an animal, maybe you have a bunch of predators, a bunch of prey, certain kinds of grasses, and an animal with just the right size and just the right diet and just the right cognitive abilities would do really, really well. It's going to fill that niche in the ecosystem. If you get similar ecosystems, similar niches in completely unrelated places, then evolution is going to try to fill them. And there's only so many solutions that are going to work. In the case of the Tasmanian tiger and the red fox, evolution independently in these two different cases was like, ah, how about I make a cute little thing that, you know, is yay feet long and has skeletons that look like this and skulls look like that. Like that seems like a good solution. Of course, it's not intentional. It's natural selection over random variation. But that completely random undirected process gives you similar solutions because natural selection is being faced with similar problems. And is this why, when we go back to creativity, that we can get this simultaneous invention because the system is on some level going to produce it? So you can get different individuals, as we talk about Darwin and Wallace, who are not connected as trying to solve the same problems, looking at the same data potentially that's, that everyone else is. And that's why you suddenly get all the ingredients you need for creativity. But so much of it is not coming from inside that one person's head. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I think the critical insight is to think about how that individual relates to the rest of the ecosystem of ideas and the ecosystem of individuals that they're inhabiting. And in that conceptual ecosystem of different insights, perspectives, tools, you're going to have conceptual niches. You're going to have a niche that needs to be filled by a particular idea that helps make sense of the larger constellation of facts. And in the same way that evolution ends up finding similar solutions if it's faced with similar ecological puzzles, similar niches to be filled, humans are just naturally going to end up at similar ideas if they're embedded in this larger complex system that's at the level of the entire society, the entire society that we inhabit. And so all of a sudden, if you sort of zoom out from individual brains, bare brains, to draw the boundaries of the system slightly differently, to start thinking about creativity as something that maybe doesn't happen entirely within an individual skull 
isolated and insulated from the rest of the world, but instead is something that emerges from people in relationship to each other with a whole sea of ideas floating around, then this idea of simultaneous invention suddenly seems like the most natural thing, the thing that you'd actually predict once you start thinking about creativity as something that emerges in larger distributed complex systems. And that concept of the individual in society and the interactions with society, that's a really lovely segue, isn't it, into the other person you want to talk about. The person who would appear quite different, I think, on the surface from the perspective of this is someone who had massive physical challenges, but yet we sort of see the same societal things, complex system things playing around them. And, and that person is Stephen Hawking. Yeah, Stephen Hawking, who is this beautiful illustration, this romantic vision of the power of the lone genius. In the collective imagination, we see Stephen Hawking, who was paralyzed for much of his later life. He had ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a degenerative disease where you gradually lose control of your muscles. He ended up dying from that, unfortunately. But for the latter part of his career, he was unable to speak, he was unable to move himself, and he was communicating entirely through, at sort of at one point, a series of eye movements and blinks that would trigger letters appearing on a screen. And the temptation there, isn't it, to say that he must be absolute genius, because it must be all happening inside his head. It can't be happening inside his head. But you've got a different story. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful story, right? That this person, you know, despite those limitations being cut off from the world, is, you know, hyper creative as a theoretical physicist, or maybe not despite of, because of that isolation, he's able to think in these creative, innovative ways. But I think it's not such a clean story. And here I'm drawing on the really wonderful ethnography of Helen Mialet, who's an ethnographer and anthropologist who spent some time hanging out with Stephen Hawking while he was still alive, hanging out in his lab, hanging out with his students, and trying to look with objective eyes at what creativity actually looked like in the flesh materially when Hawking was working on his theoretical physics. And what she saw was kind of surprising. It wasn't Stephen Hawking in a quiet room sitting alone. What she found instead was that he was at the center of this complex system that included his students and the blackboard and inscriptions and diagrams. And Stephen Hawking's role was to give little nudges to the students, little suggestions make requests for them to draw certain kinds of diagrams, to pursue certain kinds of ideas, to work on certain derivations. And he would sit often silently because composing messages would take a fairly long time. And the student would then be hard at work at the blackboard, working out these things that Stephen Hawking had suggested. So even though Stephen Hawking no longer had the ability to control his own body in the ways that would allow him to write, to sketch, to draw, he was able to use another body, the body of his student. And collectively, the ideas of Stephen Hawking and the bodies of the student, and then also the creative insights of the student would produce these new insights, these new results. And so Focusing entirely on what was happening inside Stephen Hawking's skull, we lose sight of all the work that's being done by other components of this distributed complex system. So all the work that's being done by 
the student, right? These super high level PhD students that are writing out diagrams for Stephen Hawking, these diagrams that Stephen Hawking would say he was sort of, he thinks diagrammatically. And so in order to think diagrammatically, you need a body that's going to produce those. And it's that wonderful mix of heterogeneous elements, the bodies of the students, the inscriptions on the board, the incredible brain of Stephen Hawking together collectively that's where the creativity is happening. It's in that wonderful, messy, heterogeneous mix of elements that together allows for the emergence of new insights in the real pinnacle of abstract theoretical physics. From a very different perspective, like we talked about before, we're right back at the jazz musicians now, aren't we? In the, in the free jazz. This is just creativity doing its thing. And you can't draw a circle around one person and say, it's them. They're the sole creative force in here. Yeah, in some ways it's destabilizing. We're used to an approach to science that relies on reductionism, which is where you take the system and you break it into the parts and you study each part on its own. And then the hope is at the end of the day, everyone's been studying their thing. You come together, you exchange some notes, and you're like, okay, great, I know how the whole system works. That breaks down in these kinds of complex systems. That breaks down for any system where you have all of these parts interacting, especially in nonlinear ways, so that you really can't get a good sense of what's going to happen at the level of the system by just studying one of the parts on its own. The second you take a complex systems perspective, you zoom out to the system and you start understanding that there's a whole different set of regularities that are occurring at the level of the system that you would never predict from the parts. It's the 50th anniversary of a paper that really sort of laid this out in the sciences by Philip Anderson, the title of which is More is Different. Right? The idea is that sometimes when you add more parts, it's not just more and more and more of what you're happening with the parts. This moment happens where the parts together collectively produce something new. That's what happens with creativity. You put Stephen Hawking's brain together with the bodies of his students, together with the diagrams they're putting at the board, and that is doing something that's qualitatively different than you'd be able to get from any of the components on their own. Thank you very much for talking to us about creativity and complexity. That was so much fun. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.